Amen. Thanks, guys. All right. So, friends, let's turn our Bibles. I've never actually started a sermon like that. Uh, it's pretty cool. Let's turn our Bibles to Page um, or your phones, wherever it is, to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be going through verses 21 to 41 today. And we're going to be finishing off, actually, Acts chapter 19. Okay? We we've, we've went through the whole book, going from chapter 1. We're done with chapter 19 now. This is the last part of it. And if you remember, in the beginning of chapter 19... Paul landed in a city called Ephesus, and what he did there is he started to share the gospel with the people who lived in that city, right? The good news about forgiveness of sins on the cross. And now, by the end of chapter 19, what we'll see is that in the two years' time that Paul was there, so many people accepted Christ as Lord and Savior to the point where the idol or the false god that was originally worshipped in Ephesus, a Greek goddess named Artemis, who we'll learn more about later, started to become obsolete. Right? No one worshipped her anymore. No one bought Artemis stuff anymore. And that made people in that city very, very angry. Which is the main lesson of our passage today. When the gospel impacts your heart, here's what it'll do. It'll uproot old idols. It'll uproot old objects of worship that used to live in there. Just like it uprooted Artemis from Ephesus and replace it with Jesus. And, and when the gospel does that kind of heart surgery in your life, friends, you know what you'll do? You'll riot against it. Just like the people here and Ephesus did, because that kind of heart surgery hurts bad. But we all need it, lest we continue to be enslaved by things that are not Christ. All right? So let's, let's see how exactly does God, the gospel uproot idols and false gods from our hearts, not only from the hearts of whole regions and whole cities like Ephesus, but also from each and every heart of God's people. All right, here's the word of God. Take it from Acts chapter 19, verse 21 to 41. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed, deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with a confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. 
But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, ye ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For ye have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we're all in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Thus says the Lord. There are three things I want to point out from this passage. First, when transformed lives reveal idols, it'll produce an emotional frenzy that's very hard to tame. That's it. When transformed lives reveal idols, it'll produce an emotional frenzy that's very hard to tame. Let's start with our first point, when transformed lives reveal idols. So, this mass repentance from Artemis worship to Christ worship, right? It really started to shake the whole city up to the point in verse 23 where it says, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, the way here refers to Christianity. It refers to the good news that Paul has been preaching, that Jesus Christ is God, who's come down to earth to pay for all of our sins and to pay for all of our mistakes. And that's how sinners like us can enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if you think about it, that's actually a pretty lovely message. <laughs> Isn't it? Why would anyone have anything against it? It's saying that even the worst of us, even the filthiest of us, can enter into the kingdom of God through the forgiveness offered to us on that cross. Why would anyone have anything against a message that good? Because Paul was claiming that it was the way you see, not a way. It's the way. It's the only way that you can get to God's forgiveness on the cross is the only way, which is what Jesus himself claimed in John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets the Father but through me. That's, that was the problem. That was the issue. And a lot of people in Ephesus didn't like that message. Why not? Because... Think about it. If Jesus Christ isn't merely a way, if the gospel, the good news that the Bible teaches is the only way, then Artemis is what? Is no way. <laughs> Artemis is a non-entity, right? Is a lie. 
And when the gospel uprooted Artemis from the heart of Ephesus, the city threw a riot. Now, let me just share quickly of why Artemis was such a big deal to these people. Artemis, if you didn't know, was one of the top four, three or four Greek gods back then. Okay? She was the god of fertility and hunting. And apparently, being the boss of descendants and food was a pretty important role. So everyone wanted to make her happy. <laughs> and she was worshipped almost worldwide at this point. And guess where the center of Artemis worship in the world was located? In Ephesus, in the city that we're talking about today. Back then, Ephesus had this huge Artemis temple. It was actually considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And it towered over the heart of the city and over the heart of the people in that city. And it also provided a lot of jobs for a lot of people in that city. It brought in tourism from all over the world. Merchants worked there. Slave traders would sell slaves to work there. And our silversmith Demetrius, in verse 24, he was one of those people whose jobs was also dependent upon Artemis worship. He made shrines of Artemis, verse 23 says, which are like mini replicas of this huge temple. And people and tourists would buy them. They'll take them home as trinkets, good luck charms, as objects of worship, what have you not. Now, Paul's message, the gospel, threatened Demetrius's business and reputation. So in verses 26 to 27, Demetrius gathered all of the other shrine makers in the city and rallied them against Paul. And he said, men... You know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius was upset because people stopped buying Artemis product. Now, here's the big point of this passage. Think about what actually made the Christians in Ephesus stop buying Artemis products. Paul didn't lead a big rally against Artemis. Paul didn't organize a huge campaign to cancel Artemis. Right? This was a bottom-up, ground-roots movement. Paul just kept preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel and people just started to receive Christ and stopped buying Artemis products. And here's the main point here of this passage. When you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, friends, you'll no longer worship the false gods that you used to worship. And that change of heart will be evident in your spending pattern. It'll, it'll, it'll appear in your bank account. And that's what made Demetrius really nervous. People stopped buying his shrines. Okay. That's a nice story, you may wonder. But how does that apply to us today? Most people aren't buying shrines anymore or Artemis products. Well, yes. But think about it. Think about the essence of Artemis's allure. How does he get people in? What is Artemis really offering these Ephesians? The idea of Artemis is that it offers a false system that allows people feel like they have some kind of control over their unpredictable lives. That's the whole point of Artemis. What do I mean? Here's a quote from a historian that explains how Artemis worshipped work back then. And tell me if this sounds familiar to you. 
He said people back then believed that if they can just spend money on Artemis worship, then they can make, and I quote, very specific, well-defined, usually short-term goals, such as avoiding illnesses, ensuring a bountiful harvest, getting rich, or attracting a desirable lover. Then all would be well. If I can just spend money on Artemis products, then I'll have more money to spend on health and beauty products to invest in, make more money, to have the kind of lifestyle that would attract a desirable lover and build a family with, and finally, 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 life will be okay. And the Christians in Ephesus stopped believing in that equation. Wait. The Christians in Ephesus stopped believing that financial responsibility could attract potential girlfriends? No. That's not what they believe. That's not what they repented from. They stopped believing in the first and last part of that equation, not the middle part. You tracking with me? They stopped believing that if I can just fill in the blank, then life will be great. That's what they repented from. When Christians in Ephesus repented from, what they repented from was a claim that there existed a transcendent power, namely Artemis, that they could play trade with. If I can just fill in the blank, then my life will be blissful, blissful and perfect. By the way, whatever it is you fill in that blank space with, that's your idol. That's the false god you think you can play trade with. If I can just, then I'll be. And what the gospel is showing you, what it will show you as it seeps deeper into your heart, is that it'll reveal that whatever it is you used to fill in this beginning blank space with, that thing does not have the kind of power you think it does. It's lying to you. And when the gospel does that kind of heart surgery in your heart, it'll cause riots. Second point, when transformed lives reveal idols, it'll produce an emotional frenzy. The false Greek god, Artemis, was what the Ephesians used to fill in that beginning black space of theirs. Right? And Paul's gospel uprooted it. And it caused a citywide riot. But look at how this riot started. Look at verse 28. It didn't start with reasonable dialogue. It didn't begin with logical conversation. Okay, but the differences of Artemis and, and this, the gospel narrative of Jesus Christ, which narrative makes more sense of logically, philosophically, ethically, morally? No, none of that. No dialogue. The shrine makers in verse 28, they just started shouting. Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is the Ar Artemis of the Ephesians. And they went to the streets. And the whole city kind of got sucked into the hype. Look at verse 29. The city was filled with the confusion, it says. It was like mass hysteria. Everyone was confused. It's like their bodies reacted quicker than their brains. To where verse 29 says, 
The crowd almost killed two of Paul's friends. It was, it was frantic madness, but no one knew why they were doing it. They just kind of felt all these emotions. Verse 32 comedically says, Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> they didn't know why they were there. It's like, as soon as Artemis was challenged, their, their bodies reacted quicker than their brains. And look at verse 33. You see this Jewish man named Alexander. He wanted to reason with them. He wanted to say, guys, okay, take a deep breath, calm down, let's just talk about this. But they did not want to hear it. Look at verse 34. As soon as they recognized that he was a Jew, meaning they realized that he wasn't supporting their narrative, because Jews didn't worship Artemis back then either. What did they do? They just drowned him out. Nope, not listening to you. And for about two hours, verse 34 says, two hours, they drowned out Alexander's attempt to reason by crying out again with one voice, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. And Alexander was like, well, what do you do with that? <laughs> they, they don't want to talk. It's like you can't get a word in. They closed their ears and drowned out any noise that does not support their narrative. Now, look, before we judge these rioting Artemis worshipers, let's be self-introspective and ask ourselves, don't we all have perhaps one or two subjects in our lives that we get pretty reactive about. It's like if somebody brings it up, all of a sudden, our bodies respond faster than our minds. Our mouth say words that our brain hasn't given it permission to. And we get very reactive. And we're not open at all to what anyone else has to say about it. You know, don't you and I have Artemises too? And before you say, oh, no, no, Tez, no, not, not me. I don't ever get like that. Just double check with your spouse. You know, see what they say. Or if you're not married, ask somebody who you're close with. And most of the time, I think, what we'll find is that whatever it is, you use, I use, to fill in this blank space with, that's the thing. That's the thing. When issues concerning that thing gets brought up, we react similarly to the Ephesians here. If I can be frank, the success of this church is often the thing I use to fill in my blank space with. It is. CCC can very easily become my Artemis. You know, if I can just have a successful church, if I can just have people fill in the seats, if I can just make it financially sustainable, then, you know, then all will be well. Then I can feel like I'm worth something. Then I can feel affirmed. Then I'll know that I'm not a waste of space. Lies.
And that idolatry of mine has led me perhaps to often work much, much more than I needed to. For sure, especially in the first few years of the church plant. And when my wife Tati would bring the issue up, you know, hey, I think I need you home more. Hey, the kids need you home more. Which she had all the right to do that. I would get pretty reactive. Like the Ephesians did here. Now, I wouldn't walk around the room chanting, great is CCC of the Jakartans, you know, over and over again. But I had my own version of writing. Don't we all? I think I'm not the only one who can relate with the writing worshipers here. And you may not struggle with making CCC your idol. If you do, let me know. I have plans for you, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. But usually, and here's the interesting point about, about this text, by the way. Usually, people who live in the same community or city have some kind of uniformity in the object of their worship. So, for example, you may not idolize CCC success like me, but you do idolize your career success like me. You see, you see what I'm saying? It's the same idol, it just has a different expression. And that seems to be it, right? In urban cities, no one came here. No one came here to live a slow life. You came here to be industrious, right? That may be it for the city, you know? Financial, vocational success might be the thing we fill in our blank space with. Now, why is that? Why does there seem to be some kind of uniformity, though not exactly, but some kind of uniformity in the idolatry of a specific culture? This is really interesting. You know, in verses 32, in verse 32 the word that our passage uses to describe these rioters in Ephesus is assembly. And in the Greek, assembly there is ecclesia. For the assembly, or for the ecclesia, was in confusion. And most of them didn't know why, why they had come together. And did you know that the word ecclesia is used to describe in the New Testament 114 times? You know what it's used to describe? The church. 114 times in the New Testament, this word is translated as the church, the gathering of God's people, except for this one time. This one time, it's used to describe riding worshipers of a false god. You know what the point is here? It's saying, look, that these people who live in the urban city of Ephesus, they were a church of their own. You see? So, here's why we all have a uniformity of idol, idolatry, okay? It's because when you leave the church in here, you're not going out to a neutral world out there. You're going out to a different church, to a different ecclesia, that's worshiping and promoting different gods. We just haven't noticed it. You haven't noticed whole sermons packed into every billboard advertisement you see. You haven't noticed the habits and liturgical life rhythms out there that we're all a part of, selling us a specific kind of narrative about what life should be about. You haven't noticed the version of redemption they promise as to what actually is the path toward the good life. But it's there. It's out there. It's everywhere. And we're all in it. 
That's why we have similar idols. And today, in this passage, God is telling us, Christians in Jakarta, to imitate the Christians in Ephesus. He's saying, live differently. You gotta live differently. Don't buy into the gods out there. Now, I'm not saying if you struggle with making your career an idol, then you've got to quit your job. No, of course not. Christians should be the most hardworking, excellent people in their jobs. Just as you do that, don't let the subtle messages that the false gods of the city is preaching to you week in and week out from Monday to Saturday seep unnoticed into your hearts. Expose yourself to the one true God to the real God, to his messages, in his scripture. Come to church. Expose yourself to the liturgy of what life really is about. Let him be preeminent over your heart, not the idols out there that we've made up with our own hands. Do that. And when you try to live like that, the process will be unbelievably hard because you'll get pushback. You will from both the people around you and from the voices in your own heart. Which leads us to our last point. When transformed lives reveal idols, it'll produce an emotional frenzy that's going to be really hard to tame. Okay? Let's first talk about the emotional frenzy that you all, that we, might receive from people around us out there when you start making life decisions to worship Christ instead of the status quo idol of your city. Okay? Just like the Christians here in Ephesus, when you start living like that out there, you may be brought to the judgment seat as well. And oftentimes, that judgment seat will be made to look fair. What do I mean? Look at verse 29 with me. It specifies the place where these rioters brought these Christians to. It said, and they rushed together, this is the end place of the rioting, into the theater. Now, this theater in Ephesus, it was the place that they used to hold legal town hall meetings. Okay? It would happen three times a month where they would come together, they'd discuss legal matters, decisions get made, crimes get punished. But see, the problem was, this wasn't a legal town hall meeting. This was an impromptu riot. But, you see what they're trying to do? They're trying to make it look legal. They're trying to make it look like these Christians deserve to be punished for their life decisions. Like, rightfully so. But thankfully, the town clerk, in verse 37, cleared things up. The town clerk is a person who would actually lead these three times a meeting a month. And he said... You brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. What he's saying is they've done nothing wrong. You can't just drag them in here and make them look like they deserve judgment. And here's the lesson for us. When you, Christian, refuse to spend your life worshiping the false gods in the city, many people will look at you weird. And many people will come up with reasons as to why what you're doing deserves ridicule or punishment or at the very least heavy pushback. And you know what's going to tame their pushback? 
is if you show them that, yes, the decisions you're making is not the same as theirs, but it's not harmful or silly or, in the case of these Ephesians here, illegal. They're different, but they're not harmful or illegal. And that's what made the crowd leave, you see. The town clerk, a non-Christian, by the way, saying, yeah, they're not spending their money worshiping Artemis like we are, but they're not causing any harm. They're not doing anything crazy. There's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion, verse 40 says. The way you make decisions for Christ, Christians, will necessarily look radical. It's going to look different to the people around you. And it should, because you're not worshiping the gods they're worshiping. But it should never be harmful to people or just sometimes outright silly. So, for example, it may not be best practice to sell your house to the poor in the name of Jesus and then make your kids live on the streets without food. You see? That's harmful. Harmful decisions like that is what make non-Christians have justifiable reason to put your worldview on the judgment seat. Don't do that. Live radically different. I'm not saying don't live differently. Please, do that. But don't, don't be harmful. Okay? Tame their rioting by making radical decisions for Christ that are not harmful. That's a huge theme we see here. But let's end with this. The biggest pushback that you'll receive, Christian, for living your life in worship of Christ instead of the idols of this city will not come from the people around you. The loudest pushback you'll feel is from the voices in here. It's from the world in here. And you know that to be true. Just give it a go. Go ahead. Try making decisions for Christ instead of personal wealth, for example. Do it. And take notice of how loudly your heart will riot against that decision. Notice that. And those voices, they're not going to go away as easily as the crowd here in Ephesus. They're not going to just go away by seeing a town clerk calling out for justice. No, no, no. You know how the voices in here will fade away? Only when they see a Savior enduring injustice. What do I mean? If you think about it, isn't it interesting that Jesus was in the same exact spot these Ephesian Christians were here, wasn't he? Was he not also dragged by a frantic crowd brought to an illegal town hall meeting in the middle of the night, even though he's done nothing wrong or illegal to deserve it? But the difference was, in Jesus' town hall meeting, there was no town clerk to stand up for justice. There was no Paul who wanted a Russian and help. He was actually abandoned by everyone. He was abandoned by even his closest friends, but he stayed. Jesus stayed in that unfair town hall meeting, and you know what he did? He wasn't saved, like these Christians here. He took on the full blow of that rioting crowd, even unto a cross. You know why he did that? Why? He did that 
Because you and I, every day, worship the false gods of our city. Jesus stayed there because every day, you and I leave this church and go to that church and we play trade with the false gods out there. We do. Every day, like the Ephesians, we replace the one true God with idols made up by our own hands. Jesus stayed in that riot because if he didn't, it would have been us on that cross. You know what happened to idol worshipers in the Old Testament? Jesus stayed because if he didn't, it would have been you and me drinking the full wrath of the one true God. Jesus stayed so that he can trade places with us. Do you see how superior Jesus is compared to the gods out there? They want to gain your worship by playing trade with you. Jesus gains your worship by trading himself up for you. He's superior. Your heart will chant the praises of the city's idols. It's inevitable. Our hearts are idol factories, a theologian once said. It'll always riot against our attempt to follow Christ. And there's only one voice that'll drown out all those chants. And it's the voice of your Savior whispering, It is finished. It's finished. Whatever silly trades we've made, whatever phony gods we've worshipped out there, Christ has traded himself for it, and you bear that sin no more. That's the gospel. That's the good news Paul preached that rooted Artemis out of people's hearts. So go, church. Live your life out there, but don't live it worshiping the false gods. It'll preach to you all week. Live your life, the whole of it, in worship of the one true God who traded places with you. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, we have removed you from the seat of authority that you rightfully deserve as king of our hearts and king of this world. And we've replaced you with dead things, with false systems that make us feel safe momentarily, with false gods. And we can't tell you how thankful we are that the full wrath in which we deserve to drink and take upon ourselves because we will leave this church and go to the one out there and fall back into it. We'll try not to, but it's hard. But yet you, knowing our weakness, knowing our incompetence, knowing our failures, you've come down 
and pursued us even onto a cross. You stayed in the riot for us, for the glory of your name. And Father, I pray that as you make Christ and his allure lovelier and lovelier in our hearts, you would slowly make these voices fade away and kick out the other things that we have filled in that blank blank space with. Make us yours and yours alone. Make the church sing only your praises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.